I would just start by saying that architects and designers in general don't really start firms to be employers. You know, we start a firm to do what we love, to design and to build. And, you know, most degree programs don't really have a focus on practice and what it means to practice and therefore are by and large turning out sole practitioners And there's sort of a tacit understanding that good design will automatically result in professional and financial success. And I think we all know that that's just not the case. That's not an automatic thing. So, you know, in the early years, we were focusing on design and we didn't really have a kind of a theory or a method of how to construct a practice in those early years. That comes over time. Welcome everyone to Section Cut, our first ever conference dedicated to the stories of leaders who are innovating on practice operations. Next up, we have Evan and Lee, FAIA from the Practice of Architecture and Chris Morgan from Monograph. We'll be having a fireside conversation with Elaine Moliner and Michelle Delk from Snohera. Please join me in welcoming our next guest and the final group speaking on our keynote stage today. Today, we're excited to be joined by Elaine Molinar and Michelle Delk from Snowheta to discuss collective intuition and operations at Snowheta. Before we get started, just a quick introduction to our speakers. So Elaine is currently leading general management and strategic planning and business development at Snowheta. She is a member of the American Institute of Architects and is a lead accredited professional. She serves on the board of trustees at the Van Allen Institute. She sits on the advisory boards of Madam Architect, the Penn State Stuckman School of Arts and Architecture, and the University of Texas School of Architecture. And Michelle is a partner and a design director of landscape architecture at Snowheta. She has continued to cultivate trans disciplinary collaboration while providing insightful vision for the creative advancement of the public environment and has led diverse urban projects at a variety of scales with emphatic community and client groups. Michelle is fascinated by the urban environment and its influence on people's lives. Clear thinking and collaborative principles characterize Michelle's leadership in projects. So excited to have you all. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you for joining us. And just to kind of kick off the conversation, I want to give our audience a brief introduction to the phases of the firm and kind of the operational evolution of Snowheta since it was founded. I don't know who wants to try to take it that one on. Gosh, well, I can start. I've been around since then, (laughs) which is a long time. I would just start by saying that architects and designers in general don't really start firms to be employers. You know, we start a firm to do what we love, to design and to build. And, you know, most degree programs don't really have a focus on practice and what it means to practice. And therefore are, by and large, turning out sole practitioners. And there's sort of a tacit understanding that good design will automatically result in professional and financial success. And I think we all know that that's just not the case. That's not an automatic thing. So, you know, in the early years, we were focusing on design and we didn't really have a kind of a theory or a method of how to construct a practice in those early years. That comes over time. Definitely. I I know I sometimes joke, but not really that, that if it's overwhelming, though, if you think about when you're a student entering into the design profession, you're so focused on learning design. It's, I think, in some ways, something that's really useful that we each learn more about over time. 
and we take on more and we sort of see how it all fits together a little bit differently. And in some ways, I sort of see Snohetta as a practice having evolved in the same way as we do as individual practitioners in that we've been able to expand and learn from our past experiences and evolve what we're doing. And so, of course, today the firm has several different studios in different places around the world. And of course, speaking as a landscape architect as part of the practice, something that's, I think, really important to share is that in that beginning, architects and landscape architects were working together. So we really have a DNA in our practice, looking through different disciplines and how we approach design. But I think over time, we've been able to expand upon that, develop that in different ways. And I joined the firm about eight years ago in the U.S. offices to really be able to bring more focus and look at landscape architecture in terms of the context of the practice, but also in new ways for our practice. I can't remember how long ago now, but at some point, the discipline of interior design grew and then graphic design and product design, furniture and things like that. So we have a variety of different firm owners of um, firm sizes attending. So Elaine, you mentioned that it, it wasn't kind of an intuitive, the operations piece wasn't intuitive. So at what scale did you guys have to begin kind of thinking more seriously mm-hmm. about that? Well, I would say probably a good decade in. When we started out, we were a small group of people and in a kind of an all-hands-on-deck mentality. And that worked for a long time. And even though we our practice was really established by an enormous project, the Library of Alexandria, that you know required a large numbers of people and managing consultants and, and things like that, it seemed like an exception rather than the rule. And it was about a decade later when we won the Oslo Opera Competition, I think, that we realized that getting more substantial commissions and needing to upsize and scale up was going to be more of a, a regular thing. You know, I think at that time we sort of bit the bullet and made the realization that we are also employers and we need to take care of all of those issues. So good decade in, we thought, well, okay, this we have some traction. Let's keep going. The way I understand it is that Snohetta only had a Norwegian office for roughly like the first 16 years before opening the New York office. I'm curious what lessons from Norwegian working culture uh, we might need to learn from in the U.S. And also in the reverse, like how do you think that the American culture has influenced the Norwegian office? Well, I, I think work is a part of life for all of us. And I think here we tend to create a deep ideological chasm between the two and they, you know, they can never approach each other. And, you know, while in in all of the Scandinavian countries, they take their holidays and their vacations very seriously and are more disciplined about holding those. I think there's a greater recognition of how work and life outside of work can positively influence each other because they do influence each other. I really tend to think more of work-life integration than a work-life balance because a balance implies there's always something that's out of whack. And, you know, there's a much more fluid relationship, I think. It's also important to respect local cultures wherever you are. You know, we have studios all over the world and and we need to uh, recognize that we're not at home and we have other cultures and influences and a greater diversity of viewpoints and backgrounds to recognize 
So, for example, in the U.S., you know, holidays, we recently converted two of our national holidays to floating holidays to acknowledge that we have people from many different cultures and they can sort of uh, decide how to observe their holidays. But, you know, in Scandinavia, those kind of things are baked into infrastructure. They're set. You don't need to think about it. That's kind of automatic. <laughs> I think also, you know, having joined the firm after it was well underway, some of my observations are kind of about subtle things or small things that really do influence and make a difference. And I don't think by any means they're exclusive to practicing Norway or Scandinavian culture, but I think there are some ways of thinking and working together that are a bit more intrinsic maybe than in our culture in the United States. I think it comes from a lot of different things. Our education can be quite different in the U.S. than in Europe. Even in Europe, many programs, if you study architecture, landscape architecture, interiors, when you graduate, you are fully ready to enter the profession. You are essentially what's equal to a licensed practitioner. Whereas we all know in the United States, I feel like your education is just the beginning and you continue that education, of course, into practice and, and through licensure. So what I think is important about that is there are things to learn from both. But in I think coming from our roots in Scandinavia, we can kind of think about the barriers that aren't in the forefront of our minds. So architects and landscape architects working maybe more fluidly together is a little more natural in coming from a place like Norway because your education hasn't set up those distinctions. At the same time, make no mistake, I actually think the distinctions are very valuable and disciplinary knowledge is really important. So I think, you know, to your point about what have we learned from that history and what can we learn from maybe more of our time with a, a U.S. practice is Kind of seeing where letting go of some restrictions or boundaries can be really valuable. And also recognizing as a larger practice that that specificity and that knowledge can also be really valuable. To connect to this question about school, when I was a graduating architecture student, I remember resonating strongly with Snowhead's emphasis on eating lunch together <laughs> at the uh, large kitchen table in the studio. And, and I always associated that detail as representing like a uniquely healthy working culture since lunch is a part of everybody's daily experience at work. And sometimes work hasn't really factored in lunchtime, you know, whether designed or not, you know, and just curious if you could share a story or two from the office that's centered around this table and especially like the shared meal around the kitchen table in the office. Having lunch together is something that we've always done, even when our company was very small and the table was small. And as our company grew, the table grew and grew and grew and grew. And now, you know, at some point, it also became a really important collaborative tool. But many important events happen around that table, not only having lunch every day with each other when we we're in the studio, but celebrations, whether professional, studio-wide or personal, you know, those kind of meaningful events happen around that table. Our studio has often hosted personal events as well, you know, somebody's uh, 50th birthday party or a, a wedding celebration or uh, celebrating people when they move on from our company and go on to new endeavors. We take that opportunity to recognize what they've meant to us. Well, when Elaine spoke a little bit ago about work-life integration, and I kind of think of the table and coming together as a really nice reminder to give yourself permission to take a moment. Our work is so important to us and we can get very focused and it's kind of easy to work through lunch. And sometimes that's because 
you're really passionate and focused on it. And it's not a bad thing to decide you're going to take a break a little bit later. But I think also, especially in U.S. firms, we can feel that it's difficult to take a pause. And so to me, the lunch table is just kind of a reminder that taking a break is actually a way to refresh your mind, to have conversations. And sometimes our conversations at lunch are about where someone traveled or someone who just had a baby or something happening in our lives. But sometimes it naturally flows into sharing something about a project. Maybe you just came back from a client presentation or a site visit. And so we learn and we share much more casually by just having those moments that invite us to take that time. And it can be for 10 minutes or it can be for an hour. Uh, but I think the presence of the lunch table and the idea that it's a gathering place is, is so important. And I think we've yeah. been seeing it a lot during work from home, by the way. You know, I think those daily informal conversations also build trust and that built trust also spills over into the collaborative nature of our work. It makes work much more efficient. And, you know, the benefit of that is obvious, not only personally fulfilling, but it's good for business. I want to dig a little bit deeper on this concept of sharing knowledge or even seeking knowledge. I think, you know, in architects, we tend to share with one another, but there's an article on cracking culture and design intelligence, Elaine, that you were in, and you mentioned that you have a network of people who are in similar positions, but outside of architecture. What are those conversations that are you having and what are some of the best learnings that you're getting from outside of the profession and then kind of reapplying it to your firm and and to know how to. Yeah, I think it's often not so much anything specific, but it's a great opportunity to learn from the way others handle situations, the way they handle themselves, the degree of self-awareness that other professionals have, I think is, has been remarkably valuable to me on a personal level. And I learn about the challenges that they've faced and see how the challenges I face are either similar or different and how I can learn from them. I think I've also observed great. There's a very broad spectrum of the way companies operate, other companies operate. I think it's made me realize that our profession and our studio, our company is a very special and unique place. And, you know, it gives me joy to come to work every day. Snohetta's recent monograph is titled Collective Intuition. And fascinatingly, there are several research papers in like management journals, if you search the term, that are around this specific phrasing for like a certain kind of organizational decision making. I'd love to know what's the origin of that term in your office, like at Snowheda, and how do you see that in action? Gosh, well, I could start with the latter part of your question. How do you see that in action? We might consider the work that we did in Times Square, and you could kind of equate that collective intuition to something called nudge theory, where your thought process is based on subtle clues and hints and suggestions. So, for example, the Times Square is just a juggernaut of people and cars and activity and, and even more so before we designed the plazas. And part of the plaza design were benches, places to for people to pause and actually spend time in a plaza in one of the busiest crossings in the world. But the design and location and size of those benches 
allows people to intuitively navigate through a very tight space and and stop and pause and spend time in the plaza. So that behavior is not prescribed and it's not dictated. It is intuitively understood by the nature of the design. So I think that's an example of how we might see that play out. I don't know if I know the answer to when collective intuition became a term that we started using, but I do think it captures, as Elaine says, a way in which we approach our work that is so many people will ask us or talk with us about collaboration and collaboration happens within our studio, within our teams, across the disciplines of design that make up our practice. It happens with external collaborators, so other consultants, but also with clients. But I think it also, when I think about this idea of collective intuition and sort of drawing from others, it's also about observation and asking questions and learning through process. So it's what we bring, what we know, what we've experienced, and also remembering to take time to immerse ourselves in a place and observe and recognize what your preconceived notions may have been and sort of follow that kind of intuitive uh, problem solving or exploration. So I, I think to me, it captures a lot of different perspectives. I think there's another term that you use about your work called transpositioning or the exchange of roles. Can we go a little further on that? And can you give us some examples of how this works in the design process in the studio and even maybe staffing on projects teams? Um, sure, I can start us off. I think it happens in different ways at different points in time. So the idea of transpositioning is essentially just setting aside maybe your um, individual or disciplinary point of view and kind of putting on someone else's hat. So coming to the table, we start our projects as much as we can by bringing a group of people together with different knowledge, different experience levels, different points of view, and we begin to ask questions and explore ideas. And so the idea that I'm not coming to the table as a landscape architect or Elaine as an architect, but just as a collaborator, we can start to kind of see it through someone else's lens. So you may consider the point of view of a future user or maybe consider the view of an animal in a project or, or whatnot is one way to begin. And at that point in time, especially an idea about how to proceed or a question that prompts an idea can come from anyone. So it could be a partner, it could be an intern, and it's kind of all just put on the table. Uh, I remember one project that we were having many workshops and sessions with our client group. It was a really big, complex client group. And one of my favorite ideas came from the lawyer that was a part of the client group team. So she was sort of adopted this be free and don't be, you have to let go of fear of sort of sounding like you don't know what you're talking about or saying something that people may think is a little bit silly. Because then someone around that table can draw from their experience or their disciplinary knowledge and often build on an idea that maybe was a little silly or didn't seem like it was right on target, but often that can prompt other discussion. So in my mind, the idea of transpositioning is setting aside fear, jumping into the conversation, but also then knowing when to take a step back and rely on others who have knowledge that can help really move an idea forward. It's not like we just pretend like 
I don't pretend like I'm an architect. I chose to be a landscape architect because I love it. And it's a lifelong pursuit. So it's not taking that and continuing that through the duration of a project, but knowing when it's kind of a staccato, kind of an intermittent engagement. Yeah, it's also about suspension of disbelief. So, you know, we have to put aside our disciplinary baggage, I guess, and dream a little bit and not think about handrails or grade, you know, slopes of ramps and things like that, because (laughs) we're developing the identity of the work at that stage. So it releases your creativity. Yeah, there's this great interview, Michelle, where Michelle, you you discussed this, that like early stage site planning is quite possibly the most important opportunity that we have as designers. (laughs) I'd love to know more about like, what has investing in this process uncovered for some Snowheada projects? I may be the most passionate person when it comes to site planning, something that as design students, most of us don't find very interesting. I would say, I to me, it's everything. To me, what drew me to Snowheada's work and what I think we are really able to explore is recognizing that site planning is part of setting a design in motion. It's what enables unlimited possibilities. You know, if I use a project that you might be familiar with that I think captures that really well is the Calgary Library. The Calgary Library, if people don't know, is there's a light rail line that goes right through the middle of the site. And that was there when it was basically a parking lot with a light rail. The light rail starts to go below grade or vice versa. I really believe because we came together around the table, people with different experiences and points of view, And we started asking questions like, what should this library be? And simple things like, where's the front door? And we said, wow, I don't think the front door can face any one direction because this is in the middle of an evolving city and community and we don't want to turn our backs on anyone. So then we said, well, can it be in the middle? I mean, who puts the front door in the middle of a building? And to put it in the middle, we had to get people 15 feet above street level. And so we're able to, I think of that as site planning. Where do we enter? How do we negotiate grade? And how does that start to inform the shaping of a building and a site together? I want want to lean a little bit back towards operations with this next question. Generosity, collective ownership, and political space are core values to the collective intuition. And you guys have championship reduced income gaps internally, even between entry-level staff and partners. So I'm wondering, what are the benefits of this? And, you know, how is reinvesting heavily back into the business moving your practice forward in ways that you don't think might keep other practices a little more stagnant? Wow, there's a lot in that question. You know, uh, we've been around for over 30 years now. And I, you know, I think at some point not so long ago, we realized that we won't be around forever, or at least not the our original group of people who were there from the get-go. So we need to nurture that next generation and ensure a level of continuity. And I think the more the more you can include people in what it takes to run and drive and grow a, a thriving practice, the more connected they become to it. And, you know, which of course is really meaningful and they offer valuable insight into what's working and what's not working. And being able to be a part of making something and growing something, I think, creates a stronger sense of collective identity, you know, because when everyone contributes, when everyone is a proactive participant, you create a place of joy and a place to come together and spend the day with your colleagues doing meaningful work, you know, rather than kind of holding all of that, you know, being tight 
with information about what it takes to evolve a practice. So we actually include people in that. I can give one specific example. There are many, but one when I joined, I thought was really wonderful is we try to take field trips together sometimes. So anywhere at one point it was 30 people. Now it's a lot more people, but to go visit our projects that are under construction. And that takes time and it takes money and it takes coordination. But to go and to um, together with everyone who participated in different ways in executing a project, because, of course, these take, you know, three, four, seven years, sometimes longer to be there on site together and to look at details and share stories and just enjoy uh, what the outcome is of the work that we're doing, to me, is just one example of investing and also having fun and enjoying the process. Yeah. And we, you know, we've also enabled uh, an internal task force focused on issues of diversity and equity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, that is an investment, but there's also a, a worthy outcome and the result that everyone evolves together and the practice evolves together as a whole, as a collective. Well, uh, Evelyn, Elaine, Michelle, thank you so much for this conversation, which could definitely go for much longer. <laughs> but uh, it, it's been a real pleasure for these, just to get a little slice of insight from what's happening at Snohetto, which is just an incredible place that Elaine and Michelle and, and many of your other partners and teammates have been building uh, for years and years. So it's thank you so much for participating in Section Cut with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.